good morning, everybody. Welcome to Creekside Church. We're happy to have you here this morning, whether you're in person or online. Thank you for joining us. Um, the next song we're going to sing, and I want to I want to welcome you with a with a, a verse. Um, talks about the house of the Lord, and I I was thinking this week, what what does that mean, the house of the Lord? And so there are a couple of verses here. Paul, writing in First Timothy, talks about it as God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And then in Hebrews, we read, Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So I hope this morning, even though it's a little gray and strange weather outside, I hope this is a day of joy and rejoicing for us uh, this morning as we rejoice in the Lord. So if you'd stand and sing with us, House of the Lord. quick announcements. Tonight we have a prayer night, uh, 6.30 here. You know, when the early church came together, it says in Acts 2.42 that, um, and they continued in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And this is one of those times we gather together as a body, as a church fellowship to pray together. It's really important. Sometimes that doesn't get prioritized enough, I think, but we need to come together and pray together tonight. So please come out if you can. Um, also, we have three members from our church going to Haiti this week. And so we want them to come up and pray if they're available. I think Debbie might be in Sunday school, but if Norb and JR uh, could at least come up here, and I just want to pray over them before they go to Haiti this week. Norb might be taking care of pastorly duties elsewhere, so... It might just be JR with me today. <laughs> All right, Lord, just thank you for calling your servants, Norb, JR, Debbie, to go to Haiti, and just the passion and burden you've put on their hearts to go uh, serve and help these people who are very needy, uh, both physically and spiritually. And I just pray you would bless their time uh, for safe travel and just a blessed time of ministry and fellowship together with Jude Guzma, our missionary we support there too and that it would be, great, be a great encouragement to the people and the work there. In Jesus' name, amen. I also want to introduce our guest speaker. Um, if you've been in our church for a long time, you know, very well know who John Otley is, but uh, he served here on our elder team for several years, uh, teaching and preaching and pastoral ministry, and uh, we're happy to welcome him back as a guest speaker today. He is serving in a chaplaincy ministry, and... Um, I can vouch that John has met my family's needs in a time of need, uh, in a pastoral way, in the hospital, in different situations of life, and um, God has continued to present opportunities to him that he'll talk about briefly before he preaches. But yeah, just want to welcome John uh, Otley up to the pulpit today. Thanks, John. Morning, everybody. Thank you, Mark. Uh, yeah, my name is John Otley. I, I served here from 1998 to 2011, and man, you kind of triggered me there. I, <laughs> we, we had some big moments in the hospital together, and uh, you're, you're not the only one. Anand and Lois are here somewhere, too. Uh, anyway, it, it was a real pleasure to serve Christ with you at what at the time was called Cornerstone Community Church. And let's see. Uh, so then we went to uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we were uh, closer to my my family is from Atlanta. My wife's family is from uh, 
uh, Miami, Florida. But in doing so, we left at the time three daughters and six grandchildren up here, and that was pretty miserable. And so after six years, those kids were not getting any younger, neither were we, so we moved back. Um, I thought I would get a job in church world, uh, but God had other plans. Uh, do you have that triangle slide? There we go. Um, and, you know, it, it was a, the, the whole thing was quite an ordeal, extremely difficult transition for Kathleen and me, and yet God met us and walked with us along the way in some profoundly beautiful and encouraging ways. And I you know, that, that's another story. Um, so, uh, based on God's kind providence, I found out about a chaplaincy job at the Vermeer Manufacturing Corporation in Pella, Iowa, which sometimes I'm sad to say is an hour from here because we, we live in Beaverdale and I drive an hour, you know, there and, and, and an hour back. I'm in my car two hours a day, uh, so I'm up on all the podcasts and, and all of that. Um, but I'm, I'm in my fifth year of serving there as a chaplain at Vermeer. Vermeer is in their third generation of leadership. It's a family-owned company. The founder, Gary and Matilda Vermeer, were Christians, and so they had a sense of stewardship and a a, a really a, a Christian worldview when it came to valuing employees as human beings. And so they start started a chaplaincy program now almost 16 years ago. And many of you will have heard the names Ed and Pat Ashby. They run Family Legacy Counseling in Johnston. And Pat started the chaplaincy program. Well, now, and I guess there's 2,500 people in Pella working at Vermeer. There, there are now five chaplains on that team. Uh, we have four full-time chaplains during the day. They, they have three shifts. You know, they run three shifts there in Pella. And then we have a full-time chaplain, thankfully it's not me, uh, who supports the second and third shift there in Pella. Now, a little over, a, well, maybe going on two years ago, they bought a small factory south of Atlantic in Griswold, Iowa, called Schuler Manufacturing Company. De- again, very similar to Des Moines, family-owned and operated, blatantly Christian, building for Jesus, it says, on the outside of that factory. And so, you know, we drew straws, and the guy that lived in Des Moines was picked to support the Griswold plant. So I drive out there once a month. It takes me an hour and a half, uh, and I there's about 50 people there, and I support them. And then, because Vermeer is really having a fantastic era, there's such a market for the machines that they build, they've opened a factory on the northeast side of Des Moines. They brought a division, kind of an independent division from Pella here to Des Moines, and guess who's supporting that? Because I live here in Des Moines. So a couple of times a month, that's really easy because I can leave home, be there in 20 minutes, stop in there and see people, and then go on to Pella. Uh, so uh, that, that's what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I'm very grateful to be doing it at this time in my life. Uh, and so let me just tell you a little bit about what I'm doing there. I'll try not to fall off the stage here. Um, we say that chaplaincy is a ministry of presence. 
We come alongside team members. Again, I, I support about 800 team members there in Pella. We come alongside them to care and to listen. One thing I'm proud to say about being a chaplain at Vermeer, and, and this is not so true anymore, but a lot of times when people come to church, they feel like they have to kind of dress up a little bit. Well, clearly some of y'all don't, but no, I'm... Um, but, but, you know, they're, they're kind of sometimes coming into a place that seems alien to them a little bit. Uh, we, on the other hand, as chaplains, we put on steel toe shoes, safety glasses, earplugs. Rick, you, you know the drill, having been at John Deere for so long. We, we put on work clothes, and we go hang out with them at their jobs. And um, there's so much I could say about it, but let us just say that there are many, well, I don't have to tell you this, you know people, you have people in your family, you have people living in your neighborhood, you read headlines about people who are very broken and have profound needs, and I'm getting ready to talk about that in my message. So we do three things, and it helps me to kind of picture this as a triangle. Sometimes there are emergencies. Uh, people die by suicide. Uh, People have accidents and get helicopter rides to hospitals. Sometimes there are emergencies, and we're, you know, invited to kind of drop everything and respond to those emergencies. Now, you can see that's not the biggest part of the triangle, so thankfully that doesn't happen all the time. But I, I say people, I don't have my cards with me, but I say if you ever have an emergency and you want me to show up somewhere at 2.30 or 3 a.m., you call me, and if, I, if I'm in town, I will show up. We take that very seriously. So we respond to acute emergent things. I had a guy the other day who's living with depression, and he was doing really well, and then he wasn't doing very well, and he's thinking about uh, suicide, and he's not taking his depression medicine, and so I, I got involved with that. His manager got involved with that, and, and so that, you know, so that kind of pre takes a lot of our time and attention. Another area that's very, I don't know, um, I don't know how to say this. My heart really goes out to a lot of people who are trying to get a job, and they say maybe English is not their first language. Maybe Spanish is their first language. Maybe they've just moved here from some other part of the country, and they live in Marshalltown, and they got a beater car that hardly works, and they're having trouble get, getting to Pella, and all, you know, they're, they're living with somebody that might not be their spouse, and then that person might kick them out. I'm thinking about a woman right now. Uh, so we, we respond to stuff like that. Now, the middle part of the triangle, we... Again, my factory's huge. Feel free to come down. Love to show you around down there. It feels kind of like an airport. It's a giant space. It's noisy, and everybody's got loud music going. It's, it's kind of interesting that way. You just hear all, all kinds of music. Uh, but I, I build relationships with the managers and the group leaders, and so, you know, if 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 your manager knows that you're really having a struggle with finances or, you know, your marriage relationship or your kids are blowing up or whatever, that manager will often call me to come find an opportunity to talk to you. Uh, I had a caring guy just call me the other day concerned about a team member who's having a series of difficulties, had a lot of death in his family, and I found a way to just 
open that conversation with him. So that's, that's us responding. That's the middle part, responding to requests for chaplain services. And then down at the bottom is really the main thing we do when we're, when we're not pulled away. Our, our kind of bullseye target chaplaincy ministry, uh, and, and we pick the wording carefully, just intentional wandering and the art of just loitering or hanging out, just being available. And there, there are times, again, my, my, the place is huge in Pella where I support these team members, and I'm, I'll, I'll spend time with this group or this team, and I'll see this person, and I'm, it's like, Lord, that's crazy how I just showed up with that person at the right time. And, and I've had a, I don't know, a couple of handfuls of situations like that where just so clearly God was guiding me into situations. Um, the, the culture at Vermeer is what they call faith-friendly, so it's, it's, I'm not a, an evangelist or a missionary, okay? I'm, I'm not there doing active evangelism. I'm just hanging out, and, and if you're there, I'm hanging out with you, and whatever you want to talk about, that's what I respond to. Uh, but often, often, especially with frail, white, young men who don't have a life, uh, I get into areas of, you know, spiritual truth. And uh, I gave a gal a Bible the other day who asked me if I'd ever done an exorcism. Holy cow. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, you know, a normal day down there is not very normal. Uh, but again, we're, we're delighted to be doing what we're doing, letting the love of Christ shine in very practical ways, just walking around, looking at people, smiling, and hopefully showing the love of Christ. Uh, if you have questions, you can talk to me afterwards. I, I, I like talking about it, and uh, it, it's really fun. Now, why I'm here right now talking to you about that is because you have endorsed me uh, as, as a chaplain. The, they care about some local church endorsing us chaplains for chaplaincy. That's a big deal. So that's important to me. I want to thank you for endorsing me. I appreciate it. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I reached out to the elder team and just said, hey, just want to let you know I'm still doing it, still enjoying it. Thank you for, uh, for endorsing me to that. Okay, um, so now I'm going to change gears and really talk about a burden that I have. My birthday was Friday. I turned 67. It, it was only about a month ago when I realized, I've been telling people for months I'm turning 66. <laughs> My wife is like, no, you're already 66. So uh, I just turned 67, and uh, because I'm old, um, I, I, I want to I talk to you about two plates. Uh, I have a round wooden plate, we do, Kathleen and I have a round wooden plate that was engraved, not, not like a wood burner, but kind of, it's about this big, and it says that in all things he might have the preeminence, and I think that's Colossians 1.19 or something like that. Uh, a friend of ours went to Austria, and she had that put on this plate and, uh, when we got married, which was, I think, going on 44 years ago. Now, again, I don't know how old I am, so I might have that wrong in terms of how long I've been married. Uh, but that plate is significant because that's what I want to talk to you about. And you may, not, you may not think I'm getting ready to talk about it, but I am. 
What I'm talking about today is the significance of the preeminence of Jesus Christ in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, uh, in our relationships, in our work, all of that. That's really my topic. The other plate I want to talk about is a license plate. It has a white background. It's like a vanity plate, um, although my vanity wasn't involved in it. I had a 1965 Ford Falcon station wagon. Station wagon. That was my first car. So hot. Every young teenage guy wants to drive a station wagon. And on the front of that station wagon, because it was midnight turquoise blue, there was a license plate with a white background and a blue cross on this side and big letters over here, Christ is the answer. I was ashamed of that license plate. I think I might have even tried to take it off at one point. I didn't know nor back then, didn't know how to do it. But um, So for, for so long I was ashamed of that license plate, but I'm not ashamed of the license plate anymore. Now I don't have a license plate like that, but that idea that Christ is the answer is extremely relevant to me at 67 years old, and that's really what I want to talk about today. The supremacy of Christ, the fact that Christ is the answer, and the fact that we tend to forget about that. And when we forget about that, when we get preoccupied with other things, that's not so good. It's not good at all. Okay, so here's my sermon. Here's the title, What Happened to You? What Happened to You is a book uh, by Oprah. Oprah, you know, has considerable cultural influence considerable cultural influence, and she's trying to use that influence for good according to her lights and her understanding. And so she got a guy who has an amazing, what's the word, uh, pedigree scientifically, um, uh, internship at Yale, PhD, MD, has been working with children and trauma for years and years. She got together with this Dr. Bruce Perry and wrote a book called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. Now, if you're paying attention to culture, you know that trauma and resilience and healing are very relevant issues today. Uh, and, and I don't have the book. I, I had it for a while, but I'm busy and I didn't read it. Uh, I, I, I'm going to get it back because I'm interested in it. But just reading the blurbs about the book, they're selling it. And so they said there's the main selling point of this book is that they've discovered this big secret. And they've had, they, they are advocating, yeah, you're laughing, so am I. Uh, they're advocating a shift in thinking and here's what they're saying. Instead of saying, and I'm saying saying, not asking, because although it is a question, what's wrong with you? Instead of asking what's wrong with you, ask what happened to you? That, that first question, that's really not a question, what's wrong with you? I just went to two days of marriage training, and they said, in conflicted marriages that are not healthy, that's the leading comment for many, many arguments. What is wrong with you? Why do you always, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then they go on to say, listen to this language, through this lens, 
of focusing on and asking, what happened to you? Through that lens, we can build a renewed sense of personal self-worth. And I'm not being sarcastic here. Uh, I'm I'm not being critical. Uh, But I am interested in how they're trying to sell this to the million people who have already bought this book. Um, a, a personal sen- a sense of personal self-worth, identity, do I matter, and ultimately recalibrate our responses to circumstances, situations, and relationships. It is, in other words, the key to reshaping our very lives. Me and Mr. Scientist, me the billionaire, cultural influencer, and the scientist doctor have written a book to help you change your life. Guess what? I mean, and, and it, it, it may be helpful. It may be extremely helpful. And so I'm not being really sarcastic, but I am interested in the fact that that's the book we have. We have that book that will change your life if you read it and understand it. Um, And and so, now, I I have a little test uh, here, and I I could use 130 texts this morning to preach this message. I'm trying to keep it to a few, and, and one in particular, but this isn't the one. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 13.5. I have a little quiz for you this morning. Now, don't panic. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. You can just feel uncomfortable and uneasy in your seat and just try not to show it, and everything will be good. You'll get through this, I promise. But here's, here's the, the verses in 2 Corinthians 13.5. But here's the question I want to ask. Before we get to that verse. Uh, Now you can raise your hand if you want to. But I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Although this is a pretty softball question for a crowd like this. How many here. How many here identify as a Christian? Okay. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Uh, I, I got the license plate to prove it. Okay. All right, now here, here, let me ask a follow-up question. How would you describe yourself as a Christian? How would you describe yourself as a Christian? What I mean by that is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Go to Jordan Creek this afternoon and take an informal survey. Ask, do you identify as a Christian? What is a Christian? Okay, now let's read this verse. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is what he says to the believers uh, in, in the city of Corinth in the first century. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? I'm reading the ESV in case it's a little different. Um, or do you not realize this about yourself? What's the next part? That Jesus Christ is what? what? What is it? In you. That's the answer to the test. Are you a Christian? 
yeah, I'm a Christian. According to the Apostle Paul, who did not stutter when he was giving truth about God, said the way to know if you are a Christian is if someone else, someone else is in you. That's what he said. That's, that's what the Bible says. That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What am I getting at here? I'm telling you, I have a burden. I'm a, I'm a weekly churchgoer. I care about Christianity. I care about culture. I, I support 800 people, a small minority of which are involved in a Christian church, uh, many of whom are not. So I'm rubbing shoulders every day with people, and I love this because I get to go there and, and hear them talk about all the stuff that they have to say. Um, I want to try to explain something that we Christians don't understand very well in order to make a point that we do understand but tend to forget. I'm telling you, I'm, I know we don't understand this very well because people that I've heard talk about this recently don't understand it very well. And so, this, this is, did y'all see the movie Beautiful Mind, where the guy is just like all kinds of stuff in his head? So behind me, there's this screen of all kinds of information. God, we know what we're dealing with here. Uh, uh, I, I have so much that I would like to say. This could be a sermon series. It could be a, a book, um, and, and is several books, as a matter of fact. But what I want to talk to you today, if you'll go to that next slide, this one, uh, I want to talk about a concept, uh, I want to talk about a verse, and I want to talk about implications of the verse. And this, y'all know what this is? Navigators? Do you, do anybody have experience with navigators? Yeah, okay. So, so do I. And I remember this, and there are Bible verses about all of these, what is it? That's about one, two, three, four, five, six different things. That's a wheel, okay? They call it the wheel illustration. What's, what's in the middle of the wheel? Or let me rephrase that. Who is in the middle of the wheel? Okay? That's the test. Is Christ in you? Is Jesus Christ in you? Okay, this is just a graphic representation of that. Now, I would love to talk about all of this, but you don't want me to do that because it would take too long and uh, you would get tired of listening to me go on and on up here. So what, I'm, what I like about that illustration, there's a copy of it back here I'm looking at, like you're looking at it up here, is that Jesus is in the middle. The person of Jesus Christ is in me. Paul says, hey, don't you understand that your body is a temple of what? Or whom? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How many were at the old cornerstone on 32nd, 3200 Lincoln Avenue? What verse was over there on that side? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Jesus Christ is in you. You are a temple of the 
Holy Spirit. Christ is at the center of the life of the genuine Christian, not just a person that might identify as a Christian. All of Jesus, the whole Christ, is in you if you, in simple faith, have said, I'm a sinner and I accept you, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. God has come into you through the very Spirit of Jesus Christ. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, uh, uh, but, but I hope you're hearing the point. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way to live, the truth about life, and life itself is in a person, not a bunch of ideas, in a person. And when we forget that, when, when we are not pursuing and understanding that God lives in us through the very Spirit of God, the very Spirit of Christ, when we forget that, we can get way off track. Jesus had compassion on crowds. I forget what gospel this is, and I'm going to challenge you to read the gospels at the end of my message. Uh, he, he had compassion on crowds because they're frantically following him, kind of like trying to see Tiger Woods at the Masters. All these people just frantically moving so they can see him, you know, make the putt or whatever. They're just frantically following Jesus because he's fed multitudes, and, and they, maybe they're going to get a meal as well from him. And Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion on them because they're just hazed, frantic, manic sheep that don't have a shepherd. And you know people like that. There are people like that in your extended families. You may be a person like that this morning. Although, I, I, I mean, you might be. Uh, he had compassion for their sheep without a shepherd. I spent a lot of time studying the book of Revelation. Uh, more I could say about that. But in Revelation, there's an antichrist, right? You all know this? There's an antichrist. Do you know what the word anti means when it's referring to the antichrist? Sorry? Exactly. Thank you, Anand. I'll pay you later for that. Uh, not, not, it, it, he is against Christ. He is opposed to Christ. But that preposition right there, anti, is in place of Christ. Now, friends... Whenever we forget that Christ is the center, that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ wants to be preeminent in my life, wants to be the answer for a 67-year-old guy with a lot of questions about a lot of stuff, when I forget that, I'm going to maybe buy a book by Oprah and a scientist in place of Christ. And I see this all the time. I hear sermons all the time talking about everything except for Jesus' accessibility and relevance to me. I, I hear Christians all jacked up on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook about 
politics, progressive or conservative, all kinds of issues. Let me stick to my notes. Uh, In place of Christ, Christianity without Christ, when we lose our center, we lose our way. Flannery O'Connor was an orthodox believer in the redemption of Jesus Christ, and one of her characters in her novel, Wise Blood, grew up in this wacky fundamentalist home, and he started the church without Christ. Now, when you listen to podcasts and you stream your favorite preacher, if you listen to that whole thing, and he never gets to talking about the beauty of Jesus Christ and the relevance of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ and the discernment of Jesus Christ and the, and the, the glory of knowing Jesus, if they're talking about... All right, back here. Um, When we lose Christ as the center, we, friends, who identify as Christians, can become functional legalists or functional atheists. I don't mean that we fail to... Nobody's going to... You're not going to say, no, I don't believe in God at all. But functionally, in your relationships, in your prayer or non-prayer life, etc., etc., so many young people, my kids' age, which now I'm sorry to say is like 30s and 40, uh, they talk about, there's a phrase now, church hurt. We've been in the church, we got hurt, okay? That's a thing. People have therapists now to talk about church hurt. We've had spectacular leaders and churches flame out, spectacular public failures. Men who have had uh, huge influence that have lost their voice uh, because they've, they've failed. Um, we have progressive people who are, are deconstructing and they're spiritual but not religious. We have a whole ideology in our culture. Christian Smith did surveys on young people. This is probably 20 years ago now, 20 years ago, asking young people, what do you think about life what do you think about the way and the truth and the life? And you know, you know what, basically what they said? He summarized it with these three words. Therapeutic, moralistic deism. Not Christ as the center. Therapists now are the new desirable people. And everybody wants one or Everybody has one. And I've got nothing against therapy. I, I, I'm not criti- criti- critical of that. Um, it's, and I wonder this, is, is it just caricature Christianity? They've been in our churches. They've listened to our preachers. I'm speaking from personal experience here. Um, but they never embraced Jesus Christ and engaged in His Word for themselves, and let the Holy Spirit of God bear witness to them that there's one eternal God uh, in three persons who, who became flesh, and, and He's accessible and wants to take over our lives, Jesus Christ. And so I wonder if people that, that were in the church that I served, Cornerstone Community Church, that 
were not, did not have the life of God in them, and so their conception of Christianity is like a caricature. You know what a caricature is, right? They, they, you've seen them at the fair and stuff. You pay too much money, and they come up with a clever picture of you that distorts different things, and it's, it's, it's out of perspective and out of, out of focus. So many people have rejected a caricature of Christianity, not the real Christianity. So for you and I, we could say, well, what is it that you've rejected? Because maybe I'd reject that too. Um, conservatives. Instead of following Jesus, that's what he said, right? That's, that's what he asked. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, right? I, I, I'm going to give you my spirit, and I'm going to send you out on mission to live your life in this broken world of ours. Uh, conservatives who get off the center can end up just being good, and sermons that are designed to show us the incomparable love of God who took on our humanity and died for us. Turn to the next slide if you haven't fallen asleep back there. Thank you. Um, this is what, this is who, whose spirit is living in us, the Son of God who came and took my personal sins, of which there are many, that create shame and guilt and regret. And when I, Oprah's never done that for me. Now, you, she might have given you a car. You might have paid your tickets and showed up for a pro. She might have given you a car. And this doctor might have treated your kid and helped your kid, you know, come to a more comfortable uh, lifestyle based on some serious trauma that he had. But they've never died for you. Thank you for sharing that, Bob, in that last meeting where that was clearly touching your affections. Might have been a little tired, too, for staying up too late preparing or whatever. But this, this brother over here was moved by the fact that he died for me. I should have been up there, and so should you have. He took our place. Nice people need Jesus, too. My, my wife worked at the Urbandale Library. Kathleen worked at the Urbandale Library for like six years or something. And I, I won't say too much, but there was a woman in there who was so nice. And she would not identify as a Christian. She would identify uh, as an adherent of a different world religion. But she was so nice. And if that's all it amounts to is being nice, who needs Christianity? But Paul in Romans said, good people need God too. Nice people need Christ every bit as much as people that aren't nice. So again, I'm asking Oprah's question. What happened to you? What's happened to you? Are you failing the test? All right, so let's go to uh, Galatians. And I'm going to wrap this up here. This is the... Uh, I'm going to read one verse in chapter 1 because it's talking about this question, what happened to you? 
you know, Paul, Paul's writing this letter to the Galatians, early letter, and uh, he's pretty shocked because they've turned away from the gospel. He's saying, I didn't make this up, folks. I got this message about Jesus directly from God, and I've been communicating it that way. And then he's telling a little bit of his story, and I'm looking at the end of chapter 1, Galatians 1, Galatians 1.18. He's, he's in the middle of just telling his story, which he did every chance he got, three times in the book of Acts. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They didn't know me. They only were hearing it said, what happened to him? What happened to Paul? He was a persecutor. He was a Jew of Jews of the tribe of Benjamin. According to the law, faultless. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the creme de la creme of Judaism. What happened to him? What did happen to him? He met Christ. He met Christ, and Christ changed his life. So what they were hearing is, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they, this is Paul writing this to the Galatian believers, they glorified God because of me, chief of sinners, who was passionately, absolutely wrong about Christ. What happened to, what happened to you, Paul? Well, I met him on the road, and he asked me a question. Saul, Saul, think about this question. This is really the bug I want to put in your ear about this doctrine that I'm getting ready to talk about. What did, what did he say? Saul, Saul, this is Jesus, the, ascended, the resurrected Christ, said this to Saul of Tarsus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Listen to the pronouns. Pronouns are real popular in this cultural moment of ours. Everybody's concerned about pronouns. Paul, Saul, this is the ascended. I keep wanting to say that. Maybe he was ascended. I think he probably was. Correct me later if I'm wrong. Uh, Anyway, Jesus is talking to Saul. Why are you persecuting me? That's what he said. How could he say that? Jesus, how could you say that Paul was persecuting you? He's just arresting Christians. Oh, yeah, the test. Can you pass the test that Jesus Christ is in you? Okay. Uh, All right. So, hey, Paul, what happened to you? Well, I met Christ. He changed my life. Now, this is what I I, want to say, and I'm going to run out of time. Um, I want to talk to you about union with Christ. That's a doctrine. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a great book on it. Another New Testament professor, Grant McCaskill, wrote a book on it. I about highlighted the whole book. I'm telling you, people don't understand this, and they don't talk about it very much. But I want to say this. Uh, Doug Moo, who wrote the fat commentary on Romans, wrote another one on Galatians, and now has written a theology of Paul, says there's kind of three things to keep in mind when you're reading the New Testament, okay? Maybe, maybe the whole Bible. 
the, so how, how do you see the forest and not get preoccupied by the bark on a specific tree? What is the forest of the Bible? That's what I want to talk about. I want to give you three things here. This is a very good hermeneutical foundation for you to read your Bible well. All right? Here's the first one. Uh, go back to the slide about Jesus with, with Jesus on the cross. This will help me a little bit. One more. Wherever that is. There, that one. Okay, so that's a painting by Matthias Grunwald. I'm not saying his name right. Uh, it's part of a larger painting. Uh, series of images, but you see that that's got a frame, right? He painted that, and it's got a frame. The frame of the Bible, I I hope you can follow me on this. I'm not going to explain it very well. I'm still struggling with it. The the frame of the Bible, uh, the story of the Bible is the history of salvation. If you've heard of the Bible Project, you ever heard of the Bible Project? It's a podcast. It's fantastic. Highly recommend it. Bible Project. This is what they say. Here's our tagline. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. The Bible leads to Jesus. I have a whole section in my notes that you're not going to hear today because I don't have time for it that talks. Jesus himself said, all the prophets bear witness of me. The Bible is about Jesus. Um, And if you're not reading it that way, you're off track. Jesus said to the religious experts of his day, you search the scriptures because in them you think you're going to find life, but they bear witness not of it, but of me. I, I, I'd love to have that argument or conversation. Again, this is, this, is all, this is a series. So the Bible's a story. The subject matter the organizing concept of the story is a king and his kingdom, right? Think about Rome was a dominion, okay? And who was kind of the king of Rome? Caesar, right? The, he, he was, so so the, the story concept of the Bible is a king and a kingdom. But then, like in the Roman Empire... All roads led to, have you heard that phrase? All roads lead to Rome. In in the dominion of Rome, all roads lead to Rome. In the Bible, Charles Spurgeon said, every little back alley, every little path, every interstate, every secondary road leads to Jesus. Um, So, union with Christ is the webbing, if you will, that's Doug Moo's word, the webbing that knits together Paul's diverse theological teaching. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's about Jesus being the king of a kingdom. And this idea that we are united with Christ is the web that holds it all together. All right, uh, now, if you will look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, that, again, I could pick a lot of them, but uh, this is the one I'm, I want you all to, uh, this is just a, a starting point. Paul says this in Galatians 20, I, can you, can you go to that slide with the crucifixion on it? That might help us. Um, 
Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Christ was not crucified alone. There were two thieves with him. Okay? One of them trusted him. The other one didn't. That's true of many today. Being crucified with Christ is a powerful metaphor of participation or union. May God's Holy Spirit, and maybe He'll use this picture. He's used art in my life in a very powerful way. May you be like John the Baptist pointing with their open Bible to Jesus and saying the Bible is a unified story that leads. Oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Christ our Passover. Bob read that this morning. That's a powerful metaphor of participation in Christ. Um, I have been crucified. That verb tense means there was an event that happened and it's completed. Jesus says to Telestai, it is finished. But that action has continuing relevance and implication for me today. At the center of my life, there is a crucified Savior who died and was buried and rose again. Now, I'm, i, I got to stop. Uh, there's so much in here. I, I would, here's my challenge for you before I conclude. Um, I, I would challenge and invite you to assess your relationship with Jesus. Are you aware that His very Spirit lives in you? If you're kind of, when you get in a private moment, you can put your hand on your chest and say, there is another living in me. Read, read the verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Read the second part. It is no longer I who live. I died. Christ lives in me. The old world Read Romans 5, read 1 Corinthians 15. The old kingdom under Adam is, is I've, I'm, I died. Sin came to all men through Adam. There's now a new kingdom. There's a second Adam. There's a new man. And we are now, even though we can't see it, and nobody talks about it very much, we're in that kingdom, in the kingdom of God with the life of Jesus in us. Your old life is gone, mostly. The, the kingdom began when Jesus died and rose, but he, he hasn't come back yet, right? When he returns, we will be with him because our lives, Colossians chapter 3, are hidden with Christ in God. Um, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ identifies, gives the identity to his followers. Christ defines us. Christ directs us. We are to pray our Father, to, by whom we've been adopted into his family through, through Jesus, our, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, Thy will be done. 
not our. Christ directs us. He's a perfect ruler. He's the only one that can rule your life without messing you up. Any other ruler is going to mess you up. You're going to go back to that wheel illustration for just a moment. Uh, if all of that is not in balance, p- picture, picture that being out of balance. How's your car going to drive down? If you lose track, if you are no longer open to the influence of Jesus in your life, that's relevant to marriage as well, open to the influence of your spouse, you're going to get all out of whack. And you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are and some of you know people that are. Christ directs us. And finally, friends, Christ delights us. He's the beautiful one. There's no one like him. No one else came for you and died and rose. He doesn't say, I used to be the way. He doesn't say, I might be your way if you want me to be. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Friends, there's a lot more I could say because this whole book is about what I'm talking about. Read the epistles of Paul and read for me being in Christ and Christ being in me. Read the Gospel of John 13 through 16, maybe 17. 1 John about Christ being in me and I being in Christ. Uh, Try that for a while, and I I hope that that kind of lights up your mind, uh, gives you a passion to know Christ, because there are people in your life that need you to be like Jesus. And when we're not, we forget what we should remember and remember what we should forget. We say stuff when we shouldn't be talking, and we don't talk when we should be talking. They need to see the love of Christ in you, through you. We are going to participate in a, you can call it sacrament. It's a holy activity. Call it an ordinance. It's it's a commandment of remembrance. And we're going to eat bread to remind us that we feed on Christ who is in us through his Holy Spirit. And we're going to drink a cup that reminds us that he shed his blood to make a new covenant, not an old one of the law that was designed to kill us, to drive us to Jesus, his new covenant. May God open your heart in a fresh and a determined way to know and walk and follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
folks, you're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us today.